Welcome to Cornerstone Bible Fellowship's online sermons. Join us each week as we dig into the truths of God's Word. You can find our sermons online at cbf.us sermons. We'd love to have you join us for our worship service on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at our campus at 7351 Warden Road, Sherwood, Arkansas. Now, let's listen to this week's sermon. Harmony sin, or it's also transgression. So the first one is, is, is basically a term that's used to describe missing the mark. If you've ever, you know, aimed an arrow, a gun, whatever, shot at a target, if you miss it, that's, that's the, basically the term used here for sin. And then lawlessness is, is, is trespass. That's also a way sin is described in the New Testament. It means you step over a line that you're not supposed to cross. So when he's talking about sin, it's this idea, there's an idea, a target, a goal that you're supposed to achieve or supposed to go for. You miss it or you step over a command that God has given you. And so when he says here, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. He's speaking directly at those, you know, those heretics that were saying, you can do whatever you want in the flesh. He's emphatically saying, no, sin can't, it's, it's lawlessness. It's disregarding what God says and how God says you should live. Now, one of the dangers that we have in in our lives when we, as I mentioned there at the, the introduction as I was going through this, is when we approach salvation, when we approach the work of Christ on the cross, we have to understand what the work of Christ frees us from. We talk about freeing from sin. We talk about freeing from the obligation of trying to earn salvation, and that is 100% correct. You and I cannot do anything to earn our salvation. I can't, no matter how much I try and hit the target of what God tells me to do, I miss all the time. I I can't do it. Neither can you, neither can anyone else. And the lines that God has put out there, I have stepped over those lines. And so it's only through the work of Christ that I can be made right. I am freed from sin. I'm freed from the obligation. But here's the important part is we have to answer the question, free to do what? Freed in what capacity? Because if we're not careful, we see grace, we see God's forgiveness as this freedom from sin and the obligation to trying to earn our righteousness before God. So now I'm just out here and I can do whatever I want. I'm, I'm free, right? I'm free. I just go out and live and I don't think about anything else. You might not think that way, and that's good. That's what we want to get at here. But there are those that can approach it that way. In other words, I went, you know, to when I was six, seven years old, I said some prayer, I was freed, and, you know, I was. And now I can go live and for the next 60, 70 years, however I want, pursue whatever I want. And John is saying, no. He's saying when you are are freed from the obligation of sin, you are now made slaves to something else. Paul makes this even more clear in the passage that I talked about earlier. Go ahead and put it up on the screen. It's Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 19. We saw this just a few minutes ago, but I want you to see the whole thing because this is what Paul anticipated a little bit of the Gnostic argument. He said, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. In other words, can we sin because we're under grace now? It's not the law. But Paul says this. This is how he explains it. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, of or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And 
having been set free from sin, have what? Have just gone out into the ether to do whatever you want? No, have become slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, I don't know if I have that there. It says this, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And so he's talking about when we are freed from the obligation of sin, trying to earn our way, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and and, and accepting him as our Savior and Lord frees us from trying to earn it that way. We now become attached to Christ. We're slaves to him. Now you say, well, how's that freedom? Well, when you're attached to God, when you're attached to Christ, the one who has your best interest always in mind, it's the perfect form of freedom. It's like living in a culture where, yeah, there's some rules when we drive on the road, and you may say, I don't always like those rules, but they're always in your best interest, so you don't, you know, have head-on collisions with people. Christ is always going to have your best in heart. And so when we become slaves to Christ, we now have exchanged one form of, of, of living for another. For example, when I was a single guy, my wife is teaching today, so she's not in here to, to hear all this. When I was a single guy, I had a way of life. You know, you try to find girls. You're a slob. You know, your apartment's disgusting. You're, you know, you get up whenever you want. You can kind of go do whatever you want. I remember one particular weekend I had a job, and I, I got off Thursday afternoon, and I didn't have to work till Monday, and I was like, you know, I'm going to go to Washington, D.C. I had some friends there. I was living in Nashville. I think I grabbed two things of clothes, and <laughs> off I went, you know, and there I'd hey. Then I, I met Julie, fell in love, got engaged, got married. I, I left the single pursuits, but I didn't just leave that in whatever. I now engaged in a different thing. Now I'm married, and I have a wife, and I pursue her, and I fall in love with her. We have children. We have a different way of life. And what John is trying to say here to the, this church, listen, yes, you, you left being <laughs> this horrible way of life of trying to earn God's favor through your own effort and trying to hit this mark or whatever, but when you leave that, you don't just... You're out here doing whatever, and you can behave however you want. You've now attached yourself to Christ. You can't live with lawlessness. You can't live with sin. Instead, now you abide. The way he describes it through this whole book, what you've entered into is abiding with Christ. If you've paid attention for the first two and a half chapters, John has said that over and over and over. He's trying so hard to drill this in the heads of his readers. Abide in Christ. Live in him. And so that goes to the second point of what John is trying to bring out here. Sinning contradicts the work of Christ. In verse 5 and verse 8, he kind of bookends this with talking about why Christ came. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Look at the last part of verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so you see this kind of bookend of John describing the work of Christ, why he came. The elders and I, we were, we're doing this when we have our elders meetings. We're reading through a book called When Helping Hurts is the one we're going through right now. And there's usually a little question at the beginning of the chapter. And then at the end of the, you know, you read the chapter. At the end of the chapter, you look back at your answer to the question and realize how wrong you were. Okay, that's the, the gist of this book to make you feel terrible about how you think. No, I'm not kidding. It's a good book. Well, the very first question, the very first chapter is why did Christ come? Why did Jesus come? Now, how would you answer that? Now, it's not really fair because you just read the Bible, and you're like, well, so it's right here in the Bible, preacher, which is very good. But most people probably would have said something similar to what John wrote. Why did Jesus come? 
to, to defeat sin, to, to provide a way to God, which is similar to what he says here, to, to take away sins, to defeat the work of the devil and destroy the works of the devil. But what exactly, what, what does that mean in, in the way we conduct ourselves and how we live our lives? Well, there's two ideas that are extremely important when we look at this about when Christ destroys the work of sin, what that means when it comes to the works of righteousness. Because he says that in here, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is. And he talks about how in him there is no sin. And so the first type of righteousness is what, try not to get too deep or weird on this, but it's the being of righteousness, all right? And let me describe this when there's a verse that really sums this up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Read it up there on the screen. It says this, for our sake he made him to be sin. This is Jesus, God making Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's what we call imputed righteousness. When Jesus died and rose from the dead and a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is imputed into you. It means, in essence, this. Let's just say, I'll give you an illustration. Let's just say you got busted for speeding, okay? You got busted, you're going to go stand before the judge because you got in trouble for going too fast. And you're guilty, right? The judge looks at you and sees you, you're the guilty party for driving too fast. But with Christ in us, as God as the judge, if we have Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, God sees Christ, his perfect sinlessness. It's imputed in us. That's why they're not held against us. That's why it says in that verse, we might become the righteousness of God, that we have that view from God. We're not held accountable for what we do because of what Christ did. Now, unfortunately for a lot of us, we just stop there with the being of righteousness and we say, that's what Christ does. Therefore, I'm safe, I'm good, and if I'm not careful, I just go to living however I want. But we miss the second understanding of righteousness. It's not just the being of righteousness, but it's the practice of righteousness. In other words, if we genuinely have the being of righteousness, Christ is in us, we are saved, we are, and God sees Christ's righteousness, not our sin, and we're dwelt by the Holy Spirit, we have that, it will necessarily change the way we live our lives. You can't. That's why it doesn't sin and and. and Christianity don't mix because if we truly are abiding in Christ, it's going to change the way we live. That's why John says in that verse, little children, let no one deceive you. Don't let these Gnostics lie to you that you can live and behave however you want. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is. He's not saying that the righteousness comes first, that you're righteous and that makes you right before God. No, Christ saves you, makes you righteous, imputes that in you, and it changes your behavior. And John uses a contrast here to bring this out. He uses the devil. It's one of the few times John talks about the devil. So he says this. Look what he says about the devil in verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is what? Of the devil. For the devil has been sinning when? From the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So he talks about, listen, to contrast this, there's those that abide in Christ and those who are of the devil. And you see that with the way people live their lives. Now, when we think about the devil, it's important that he's, what we see when he says, he's been doing this from the beginning. Now, what does it mean from the beginning? Now, he doesn't tell us. He doesn't say, is this before Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Is it at that point? Is it some other point? He doesn't tell us, and I don't think it's all that important. He's just simply saying, this is the essence of who the devil is. 
The devil sinned at some point, was cast out of heaven, was thrown down, and all he is about is sinning. He has no future. This is important to understand about the devil, that God has already told Satan what his future is. He's going to be cast into a lake of fire. Satan knows this. He's, he's not unaware of this fact. He has no hope, no future. So whatever existence he has here right now is dedicated to doing anything that thwarts or attacks the works of God. He's consumed with himself, consumed with his own pleasure, consumed with whatever he can to do for himself. And so we use, John uses the image of the devil to say, listen, is that who you are? Are you somebody who sees the only thing of importance is this world? What exists on this planet? Whatever I can get out of this world, whatever fortune, whatever pleasure, whatever little bit of happiness I think I can squeeze out of this existence, because I'm only here until, you know, my day comes and I'm six feet under, and so I don't really care who I step over, who I hurt. I just want what's mine. And that becomes the, the focal point of our life, how we live our life. When you're somebody who's of the devil, when he's talking about practicing righteousness and practicing lawlessness. And when you look out over the world, you can see how people behave that way. They look at the, you know, I'm not saying they're as evil as they possibly can be at all moments at all times, but they're people who genuinely look and say, listen, it doesn't really matter what happens after I die. I just want whatever I can get now. I'll leave my kids. I'll leave my family. I will walk. I'll hurt people that I'm supposed to love. I will engage in activities that I don't care who I hurt. It's all about me. It's all about whatever I can get out of this life. And anybody talks to me about any sort of deep-seated things, I don't want to hear anything about that. And so John is talking to them because the Gnostics were living that way. Oh, I can say the right words over here, but my behavior displays I don't really believe any of those things I'm talking about. This is a danger in our culture today. There's very little what I would call persecution for Christians in the United States of America. There's some, but not that much. You don't really face a huge onslaught of saying you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So it's very easy to just say the words you need to say, right? Yeah, whatever it is about Jesus, it's sure, I'll check whatever box you want me to check. Or, But then you look at the way they live their life, does it even remotely match what they're saying? It's important. Because if we're not careful, we get so casual with it, we think, well, you know, he says the right things or she says the right things about the churchy stuff. It doesn't really matter at all how they live their life. And John is saying, I mean, I'm just telling you what you can read for yourself. The final point, which kind of builds off the last one, is really sinning contradicts the work of the Holy Spirit. Verses 9 and 10. No one born of God... This is important. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Why? For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And so he just kind of, he, can try, he talks about the seed of God. Now, what is the seed of God? Is it the Holy Spirit or the Word of God? And different scholars think different ways. I think it's probably a little bit of both, that the work of the Word of God works through the power of the Holy Spirit in you, and he says it's the seed how many of you like to plant a garden? Anybody like to plant? I, a few people like to plant. Are you good at it? I mean, do you? I like 
fresh vegetables, so if you do, I'm just throwing that out there. But anyway, yeah, when you plant a garden, you go out and you get like a tomato seed, right? They're tiny, they're itty-bitty. They're hard to distinguish between, like, say, a cucumber or eggplant or something else. But when you put it in the ground, if you take a tomato seed, what's it going to produce? Tomatoes, right? Cucumbers are going to produce cucumbers. We know this. It would be really weird to put a tomato seed in. And, and I've done this before where I put a seed in, thought I put it in one, and then it grew, and I was like, whoops, you know, that, <laughs> wrong thing. Tomatoes aren't long and green. And the point John is making is, listen, if the seed of God is in you, it's going to produce a particular type of fruit. It can't produce the works of the devil. The works of the devil indicate there's a different seed within you. And through this whole passage of Scripture, this is what he keeps trying to get across to them, that too many of the Gnostic-type people, they were saying one thing, and, you know, you can, as long as I check off these boxes, I can behave however I want. And the truth is, I, I, I've been doing this for 15 years. I went back to my old church this past couple of days. I performed a wedding back there. So I've been, you know, it's kind of neat to see some of the old places. But I've been doing this for a long time now. And I will say this is probably the, the thing that bothers me the most. Is that we have made the gospel something that's just kind of a Remember in Monopoly, the, the get out of jail free card. Tell me what I got to say. Tell me what hoop I got to jump through and then give me the card so then I can go do whatever I want to do. And John is saying that's, that's, that's an indication that everything he's written about up to this point isn't really real. We have outside of the front door of our house, we have a cocoon. And a few days before the cocoon was formed, there was a caterpillar. And I think God gave us the caterpillar and the butterfly for the illustration of salvation. Because everybody knows, you see a little caterpillar, it's this fuzzy little thing with all the little legs and it barely moves and it eats leaves or whatever. And then one day, it it puts itself in a little cocoon. And I really wish we could have little tiny cameras to see what happens in there because while it's in the cocoon, it changes. And when it comes out of the cocoon, what is it? It's a beautiful butterfly with pretty, you know, pretty wings and they can flap and all that. Now, just imagine, how does, a, how does a caterpillar get around? It inches along, right? I mean, the little legs do their, it's pretty cool looking, but they, they move really slow and they stay on the ground. And how does the butterfly get around? It flies. Now, how weird would it be if a butterfly came out of its cocoon and all it did was crawl? You would look at it and be like, fly, man. Come on, you can do it. Why walk? You have these big, giant, beautiful wings. But the, cater- or the, the butterfly just continued to, to live as a caterpillar. Something's not right there. And as, as simple as I can say it, if somebody says, listen, I've professed faith in Jesus Christ, and their life is basically consumed with this world, what I can get out of this world, I don't care who I have to step over, what relationships I have to destroy, whatever it is, you have the devil, or do you have the Holy Spirit seed within you? So what we're going to do, we're going to do something a little bit different. And everybody's like, uh-oh. I'm going to ask the musicians to come up. That part's not different. Right, they're going to come up and I'm, whichever one of you has got an instrument to just kind of play quietly in the background for a few minutes here. We are going to sing a final song, but I'm not going to ask you to stand yet. What I'm going to ask you to do, because one of the, the points of this sermon 
is really, like I said, there's not a, really a lot of commands in here. It's more of a, a sermon that just kind of reveals things about how casual are we with sin and how easy it is for us to just really just quickly when we, we pray or we talk to God to just forgive me or to talk about what, God, this is what I need. This is what I want. This is what I need to have. Fix this problem, whatever. We don't spend a lot of time looking at the sin in our lives. So what I'm going to ask you, I'm going to lead you through a little bit of a, a time of prayer. And if you can, I'm going to ask you, now this is the part that's a little different, to turn and kneel like the, the chair is almost like an altar for you, okay? If you cannot do this, I have a bum knee, this would be hard for me. If you can't do it, that's fine. Just bow as much as you can. But if you physically can do this, go ahead. Go ahead right now. Turn and kneel. If you can. If you can't, that's fine. Nobody's going to think anything less of you. I promise you. And what I want you to do is you just close your eyes. This is just for you and God. This is a powerful passage of Scripture. Because what John is really asking you to do is to look at your life and to see what you, see if you're really his, see if you're really the follower of Jesus Christ. And so I want you to spend just a moment and ask God right now in your Holy Spirit to reveal, in, in, through his Holy Spirit, to reveal in your life, am I truly following you? Are you truly the Lord of my life? Or is this something I've been so casual with sin that I have, I've missed the fact that it dominates my life? So spend just a couple of moments praying for that. you pray for that, if the Lord begins to reveal ways on your heart that you have questions about your eternal state, whether you're a child of his or a child of the devil, I encourage you after the service, come find me, one of the elder elders that would be down here, Walt, he was, he's teaching across the hall. Find somebody with a lanyard. This is an important point. But the second thing I want you to do is you sit there and, and spending time with God is I want you to look at what you pursue. What is it that is the goal of your life? If, if an outsider, if I were to talk to somebody, a coworker, your family member, your children, maybe your spouse, and I were to ask them, hey, what is this person? What is important to them? What do they pursue? How is their life orchestrated? What would that person say? And would they say they pursue abiding in Christ? And I want you, as you look at some of the things, I want you to spend some time maybe having to to repent, to turn from some of the things you know that have gotten in the wrong spot in your pursuits in life. just a few moments asking yourself what you fill your mind with what do you watch what do you read how much time do you spend filling your mind with the worldly things versus the good things the pure things whatever is lovely righteous pure good the things the bible tells us to fill our minds with and ask ourselves how much how casual have we become with what we fill our minds with
last thing this morning. I just want you to spend a few moments about your speech. Not just what you fill your mind with, but also then what comes out. What do we say? Is it bitter? Have you gotten used to complaining? Being negative? Do you uplift people? Do you build them up? And so just spend a few moments with God looking at what you say. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand now. You're going to do a little exercise this morning. First you sit, then you kneel, then you stand, you know. You get the whole thing when you come to Cornerstone. Now I want you to know during that whole process, that was maybe three minutes. And I just covered a couple of areas. One of the things, I've shared this with before with as a pastor, is I don't think we're supposed to dwell on our sin. I don't think it's something that we just, you know, it becomes consuming in our life. But we have to be really careful that we don't just gloss over it, that we don't become comfortable in, in how we, we live without ever thinking about what we looked at in the last verse last week. Purify yourselves as he is pure. And what that, if you remember the illustration, I said I used to like to draw, and there'd be a picture of, you know, I'd draw, and if it didn't look right, I'd erase it and try and fix it. And that's a little bit about what God is doing in your life. When you spend time looking at some of the aspects of your life, God shows you some parts that need to be fixed. And we don't just erase his Holy Spirit helps us, convicts us, and helps us find new ways to live. That's, that's what this pursuing righteousness is. It's a great thing that he does. But we have to quiet ourselves and spend some time to do that. And so I encourage you this week to find those times, to realize what John is saying here is, is extremely important, that for 2,000 years people have tried to approach sin with the idea, well, I'm saved, I don't have to worry about it anymore. Well, no, you're put on a path to pursue righteousness, and that's what we need to do. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a final song. Lord, I thank you for this passage of Scripture that is so vitally important. No one who follows you makes a practice of sinning. And so, Lord, I look at my life, and I pray that my life is, well, I see that, and so, Lord, I pursue you. I abide in you. I've seen it in this book, and I pray that that continues to be a part of my life and for others here. Lord, I lift up anyone here that in spending those quiet moments with you, maybe revealed they've never really, truly turned their life over to you. And so, Lord, I pray that they would get that right, that they would ask for your forgiveness today. They would cry out and say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. Lord, they take that step. Lord, I thank you for all that you have done and the life that you have given us, the freedom to be your slave. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.